pray. Lord God, as we just sang, as we behold the face of your Son, we are changed. And for 21 chapters now, we have been beholding the face of Jesus. We have witnessed his character. We have heard his teachings. We have seen, Lord, visions of his salvation. We have been encouraged both with his truth, admonished, Lord, with his words of rebuke, and challenged, Father, to go forth in zeal for his mission. Help us, Lord, today to keep our eyes on your Son, Jesus Christ, your Son. Help us to acknowledge you, Father, in light of him. And help us to be empowered by your Spirit, as we just sang, Father, as we seek to be mobilized for mission. Those who are able, Father, to do extraordinary things through the power that you provide and through the access that you've given in prayer. And we pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Some things are not supposed to happen, and other things are supposed to happen. Some things are supposed to happen, and some things are not supposed to happen. For instance, new cars are supposed to run properly. A healthy diet and plenty of exercise are supposed to lead to good health. Tom Brady is supposed to win the game for his team in the fourth quarter. And leafy fig trees are supposed to bear figs. But as we know, not everything that is supposed to happen happens. By contrast, human beings are not supposed to walk on water. And teachers are not supposed to transform small lunches into meals for thousands. The blind are not supposed to become unblind. And ordinary people are not supposed to move mountains. But with Jesus, things that are not supposed to happen, happen. Today's message is about what was supposed to happen but didn't, and what's not supposed to happen but does. As we look to this passage in Matthew 21, the Lord Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the last week before his death on the cross. And he is about to face the cross because, first of all, it's his Father's will that he go to the cross. And, secondly, because the anger of the religious leaders towards Jesus was nearing the point of explosion. However, in the midst of this unmatched conflict with the chief priests and the scribes of Israel, Jesus takes a moment and he uses the occasion to teach some crucial truth. And there are two crucial lessons that Jesus is teaching his disciples then and today here from our text. Number one, fig trees should bear figs. And number two, faith should move mountains. So number one, first crucial lesson, fig trees should bear figs. Look at verse 18. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, 
may no fruit ever come from you again, and the fig tree withered at once. Jesus is in the midst of the greatest conflict. If you can remember, he he came into town on Palm Sunday that we saw a couple of weeks ago, riding on a donkey. And the crowds were chanting on that day, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then, as we considered just last week, he entered the temple in Jerusalem. He declared his right over his house by expelling all the sellers and all the money changers. And then he received even more praise from little children who also cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. And as verse 15 states, this made the chief priests and this made the scribes indignant. So they were white hot with anger. Now, next week, as we're going to see, we're going to consider more of chapter 21 where we're going to see the religious leaders actually challenge Jesus' authority directly. They're essentially going to ask him in verse 23, who gave you the right to say such things and do such things and receive such praise? Where do you get all this authority that you seem to be claiming for yourself? And then Jesus, not backing away from them, is going to say to these men of, high religious reputation in verse 31 that the tax collectors and the prostitutes will actually go into the kingdom before them. Meaning that the people who are considered to be the most unrighteous but who repent before God are going to enter the kingdom of God. But those who are considered to be the most righteous but who are unrepentant before God will never even enter the kingdom of God. And finally, Jesus is going to tell these leaders at the parable at the very end of chapter 21, comparing them to the evil tenants of a vineyard, that the kingdom of God is actually going to be taken away from them and it's going to be given to a people who actually produce its righteous fruit. And at the very end, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they understand exactly what he's meaning, and they attempt to arrest him. So all of this is about to boil over here in the city of Jerusalem because the religious leaders in Israel, they were rotten, they were unfruitful, and Jesus would not back down against these evil shepherds, which ultimately led him to the cross where he would die for tax collectors and for prostitutes people who are an awful lot like you and me. And in the midst of all of this conflict, Jesus took time to teach. And he used an object lesson to communicate a crucial point to his disciples that fig trees should bear figs. Now in verse 18, the Son of God desired fruit for his own enjoyment. He and his disciples had been staying overnight in the village of of Bethany, just to the east of Jerusalem. And while he was returning to Jerusalem the next morning, he became hungry, it says. 
And on the journey, he encountered a fig tree by the wayside, a tree which had leaves on it, it says, but at closer inspection, they find out it had no fruit. The fig tree produces a sweet fruit, which both grows wild and was in that day and is still even to this day cultivated by the people of Israel for food. Now, the fig tree is leafless in the wintertime. But around February, it begins to put out its buds. And around March or April, its leaves begin to appear, which soon bring on the juicy fruit that they so love in that land. Well, while Jesus was walking by this particular tree, he evidently noticed its leaves and therefore approached it, hoping to have a breakfast of figs. So, understand, it had leaves, and therefore it should have had some fruit. It was supposed to have had some fruit, but upon reaching the tree, he found it to be fruitless. And this stands, of course, as an analogy that Jesus employs to teach his disciples about the dereliction of duty among the leadership of Israel. You see, the Son of God, understand, my friends, he desires fruit for his own enjoyment from his people. The Son of Man, the Son of God, desires spiritual fruit for his own enjoyment, for his own glory, from his precious people. John the Baptist, if you recall, had declared God's desire for fruit when John himself encountered the religious leaders of his day. If you think back to Matthew chapter 3, it says in verse 7 that when he, John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John the Apostle, John the Baptist said it. You leaders, you don't bear fruit. Don't count on your heritage to make you right with God. Understand, if you're not bearing fruit, your tree is going to be chopped down. John said this. The Apostle Paul also related the aim of the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead, who would transform God's true people into a fruit-bearing people. In Galatians 5, verse 22, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What God's Spirit does when He comes upon His people is not just redeem them from their sins, but redeem them unto a new life of fruitfulness. He actually enables His people to begin to live joyfully and peacefully and lovingly and in self-control and so forth. This is what God does for his people. He makes them bear fruit. While Jesus, seeing leaves on the tree, he should have found some fruit of figs, but he did not. And Jesus, encountering the religious teachers of the people, should have found the fruit of righteousness, but he did not. So as the maker and as the master of heaven and earth, Jesus, he cursed the fig tree because of its fruitlessness. 
He says in verse 19, may no fruit ever come from you again, or literally in the Greek, unto eternity. And the tree, he says, withered at once, Matthew writes. The tree that should have borne fruit, which had leaves which signified that it should have borne fruit, it bore no fruit, and he therefore cursed it. And the religious teachers who should have borne righteous fruit, who were in positions of leadership which should have borne righteous fruit, bore no fruit, and my friends, their curse was coming. And this ties into a common theme in Scripture of how God responds to his fruitless people. In Jeremiah chapter 8, the Lord is found mourning in sorrow over the fruitlessness of his people Israel. Jeremiah records in Jeremiah 8, verse 13, these words. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. He had given them much. He had planted them. He had sowed them correctly. But when the time came, all it was was withering. There was no fruit for him. Oh, how sorrowful that his people should be fruitless. In Isaiah chapter 5, the Lord communicates that he will actually judge his fruitless people. Listen to this very important and a little bit lengthy text from Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. Listen to this song. It says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hooed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked to it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And I, now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. What is this fruit that God demanded from his people, from his vineyard? Justice and righteousness. That they would treat people as they were expected to be treated as image bearers of God himself. That they would act in righteousness, obeying his commands, keeping his decrees, honoring the God who had made them. But when he looked down at his people, they were not bearing the fruit that they were intended to bear. And so he tells his vineyard, I'm going to chop you down. My friends, Jesus, the Lord of glory, was not okay with the leaders of Israel being fruitless leaders. And not only does he call them on it, but understand, my friends, especially you leaders, he will one day judge them for it. It says in Matthew 16, if you remember a few chapters ago, 
verse 27, these words. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. There is going to come a day when Jesus is going to stand before all people's sheep and goats, and those sheep who are his sheep, his beloved, he is going to welcome into his eternal presence because they are those who have kept his word, those who have borne fruit through his spirit, those who are truly his people. But then there will be a whole flock of goats, of people, some of whom who even said they were followers of his. And he will say, depart from me, you're a worker of lawlessness. He will one day stand before the peoples and he will repay each person according to what he has done. That is the word of Jesus. The gracious Savior who sheds his blood for the sins of his people is the same Lord who will one day judge all peoples. If they be fruitful, praise God he has done it. If they be unfruitful, they will face God's judgment. This is truth. My friends, this fruitless fig tree stands as a warning to us even today. To both the teachers and to all of those who think themselves religious among us. Woe to all teacher leaders if they do not bear the fruit of righteousness in their lives. Woe to all teacher leaders if they do not declare Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Savior before others. And woe to all teacher leaders if they do not promote fruitfulness among God's people. Woe to them if they don't bear the fruit that they are intended to bear. Woe to me if I do not. Woe to our elders if we do not. Woe to the teachers of our church if they do not. Woe to the husbands in our church if they do not. Woe to the parents of our church if they do not. Woe to those whom God puts in a position to say, Jesus says you must do. Jesus did. You can be saved. Woe to all of those who fail to bear fruit. Teachers of all types must constantly be examining their lives and doctrine. Understand, they must constantly be examining their lives and doctrine. Whether it be someone who teaches a foundations lesson, or someone who preaches a sermon, or someone who leads their family in family worship, or someone who teaches a Sunday school lesson, or simply imparts truth to a young child who has a question, we must all examine ourselves constantly for our lives and our doctrine, our teaching. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verse 16, this command. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. What does Paul say to his young child in the faith, the young man whom he himself had led to Christ? What does Paul say to Timothy, the pastor of the church at Ephesus? What does he say to this man who had given up all to go and follow Jesus? He tells this man, you better keep a close watch on both yourself and your teaching on both your own fruitfulness and your doctrine of teaching it before others. He says, keep a close watch, not one that we return to every once in a while, but a daily, constant examination of what we are and who we are before God and how God is working through us and what we're actually teaching before others. A persistent, ongoing, constant examination. 
not to make us feel low, but to make us confident in God so that we can actually teach, actually proclaim in a way that has power. Woe to all the teachers if they be unfruitful in their own lives and if their teaching be anemic. And woe to all the religious who say, Lord, Lord, with their lips, but are fruitless with their lives. Woe to all the religious in this building, out of this building, who say, Lord, Lord, with their lips, but are fruitless with their lives. The chief priests and the Pharisees and the scribes, they embodied that kind of religion quite well. Lord, Lord, God is God, the one true God. There is only one God. The Lord our God is one, they would say. And they would say his law is one that should be kept, and they would insist that his people keep his law. But at the end of the day, when it came to the most important thing, seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of the law, seeing Jesus as the deliverer from their own sins, they were vacant in heart, unable to comprehend that they themselves were sinners in need of God's amazing grace. Lord, Lord, they would say with their lips, but oh, how fruitless they were with their lives, to the point that they would soon condemn the Savior to the cross. My friends, there is a tremendous difference between saying you are a Christian and actually being a Christian. In 2021 U.S. of A., it is still incredibly easy to say you are a Christian. And many upon many people say it. But there is a great difference between saying you are a Christian and being a Christian. Saying you're a Christian may still have some benefits for you in some way outside of the gospel. But being a Christian means that you actually stand for the gospel and bear the fruit of the gospel. Jesus said, and we read part of this passage earlier in Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He goes on to say, on that day, many will say to me, on that day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I, Jesus, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There are those who say they're a person of God, who have it on their lips, and then there are the people of God who bear it with their fruit. There are workers of lawlessness, and there are those who have had their lives transformed by the gospel, and they have fruitfulness. There is a gigantic distinction. It's sometimes hard to see in our society, but we find it out when we investigate fruit. So heed the warning of the Savior today, my friends, and bear the fruit of repentant faith. Understand that God's Son, the one who declared this teaching, is the same Son who would go to the cross and shed His blood in just a few days from this moment in the Matthew's Gospel. Shed His blood for the payment of the sins of sinners. So that anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ will be forgiven and have salvation eternally with Him. Will have a relationship with God that will bring about fruit in their lives. Oh, bear the fruit of repentant faith. The second crucial lesson today is that faith should move mountains. Look at verse 20. 
When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. The withering of this fig tree provided Jesus still another teaching opportunity with his young learners. When they saw what happened to the tree in verse 20, it says that they marveled over it. Now, I think it's hard to to recognize why they would still be marveling at something that Jesus does at this point after all that they have already seen in this gospel from Jesus. It's amazing that they would even marvel at something. In some sense, I would think, isn't that kind of commonplace? If Jesus says a tree is going to wither, it's going to wither because uh, not that long ago, Jesus had this little bit of bread and he turned it into a meal for thousands of people. So it's amazing that they still marvel, but they marveled still. And they asked him, how did the fig tree wither at once? Or in other words, how on earth did this happen so quickly? Now Mark's gospel account of this, he's the only other gospel writer to mention this narrative. His gospel account of this event has Jesus cursing the tree, and then Jesus leaves the tree, and then later on upon returning to the tree, they find that it's withered. But Matthew's word here does justice to what has occurred. It withered at once, or in the Greek, it it withered quickly. It, it, It withered in a very short amount of time. And at their question, Jesus, like any good teacher, he uses the opportunity to teach his learners some crucial truth. Notice in verse 21, he doesn't spend any time actually explaining to them what happened to the tree. Instead, He tells them that rather than marveling over what happened, they should consider the fact that they would soon be doing extraordinary things themselves. Because Jesus tells them that a doubtless faith can move even mountains. Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, You will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. My friends, Jesus is not being literal here with regard to the mountains. That has to be said. If you haven't seen the illustrative way that he speaks by now in this gospel, I don't know what else to say. He uses hyperbolic language frequently to make big, strong points. He is not encouraging his disciples to speak in faith over actual mountains in an effort to physically move those mountains into the sea, like an audience-seeking magician who merely wants to amaze people with the ability to do the unnatural. He's not encouraging them to be showmen. No, Jesus is being metaphorical, and the context of his words must be our guide to his meaning. Whenever you read scripture and you don't understand, the first place to look is the context of the whole book and of the passages right close to the passage you're reading. We'll consider the context. In this very chapter, there is spiritual adversity from false teachers who seek to undermine Jesus and halt his progress as the king of Israel. 
And throughout this book, we have seen Jesus call his followers to radical holiness. Throughout this book, we have seen Jesus call his followers to sacrificial discipleship, to take up their crosses and follow him. And throughout this book, we have seen Jesus call his disciples to zealous mission, even in the midst of persecution. In fact, at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, he gave them their ultimate task. When he said in chapter 4, verse 19, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And at the very end of this gospel, he will say to these same men in Matthew 28, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. He tells them to go and make disciples. He tells them to go and do an impossible thing, to get people to become followers of one who died for sins and then rose from the dead. That's a mountain. So the context tells us that what Jesus means by mountains is spiritual opposition to the gospel. What Jesus means by mountains is fleshly temptations against holy living. What Jesus means by mountains is worldly enticements to turn away from Jesus. What Jesus means by mountains is hard hearts toward the spread and the acceptance of the gospel. My friends, these mountains are any obstacles that keep God's people from being what he has called them to be and from doing what he has called them to do. Any obstacle that keeps God's people from being what he has called them to be and from doing what he has called them to do. Something far more splendid than picking up a rock and throwing it into water. And the way Jesus says these mountains can be moved is by a doubtless faith. It is through childlike trust. And oh, we have seen that childlike trust expected of his people again and again. It is through a childlike trust, an ongoing dependence upon Jesus himself, that sets aside all the human doubts and believes that God will work even though it may seem utterly impossible. And this promise of mountain-moving action and its connection to faith is a common refrain by our Lord. In Matthew 17, verse 20, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, You'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing of God's will will be impossible for you. If you seek to follow God's will, to be the people of God and do the things of God, nothing will be impossible for you, Jesus says. In John's gospel, chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask, pray to the Father, in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If we ask according to God's will, seeking to be the people of God and to do the things of God, when we ask, we can expect not always to be answered precisely as we might think, but he will answer. He will work. But the primary opposition to this faith lies inside of our own minds, Jesus says. Doubt. Doubt 
is uncertainty over God's promise. It is to waver over what God has declared. Doubt is to hear what God declares in his word and then say, well, maybe, but I'm not entirely sure. This is the mind that considers the God of glory of little account because it undermines both his promise and his very character to keep his promise. The Apostle James, he warned against this kind of thinking. James wrote in James 1, 5, and 6, that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. So the one who doubts is one who has the wind move him or her in every which way, and they have no solid position upon which to stand. You see, doubt is the cancer that kills the cells of faith, which thereby halts all of our efforts to perform extraordinary deeds for our God. But Jesus is telling his disciples to have mountain-moving he is telling them to trust him as they live out his extraordinary plan, his great calling for their lives, because soon they would be physically apart from Jesus, though his glorious comforter would come to them, and they would need to trust him constantly if they were to be a robust people in his already but not yet kingdom. And Jesus tells them that the right expression of such faith is prayer. Verse 22, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now this whatever is not a blanket whatever that encourages his disciples to ask for selfish things which only please the flesh but have not God's mission in mind. James, again, he writes of this. He clarifies later in James 4, 2, and 3. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Jesus is not saying that whatever you ask to meet your own passions, your own selfish, fleshly desires, that you'll get. He's not saying that. He is saying in the context of Matthew's gospel... In the context of all that he had been teaching his disciples, that whatever they ask according to God's will, to see them become the people of God, and to see them reach people to become the people of God, whatever they ask unto that end, he will answer them. This whatever, it includes all the things connected to God's mission of overcoming sinful strongholds and transforming hearts for others in kingdom service. Jesus is saying, if you have faith and do not doubt, then when you pray, you can ask for anything that will enable you to accomplish my mission of making you like myself and of reaching people with my message. My friends, he's not saying that if you pray hard enough, you're going to get the beautiful new car. He is saying if you pray with zeal with God's people, you pray faithfully without doubt, God will begin to transform your life, their life. God will begin to reach people through you. It won't always be exactly as you expect, but God answers his people's humble, dependent, undoubting prayers 
with the word yes. Doubtless faith is best exhibited by bold missional prayer. It is best shown by praying to God for big things as he spreads his big gospel and brings big transformation to our lives and to others' lives. But notice, my friends, that this kind of prayer, it is communal prayer. Jesus speaks to them here as a group. He tells them as a group to pray in such a way. In fact, if you notice verses 21 and 22, all of the you pronouns in this passage in the Greek, or in the plural. In the English, we don't do very good with this. The word you, we don't really know what it means except by context. In the Greek, it's very obvious. The word you is in the plural, whether it's in the verb as the plural or stands alone as a word in the plural. Look at verse 21. Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, plural in the Greek, if you, plural, have faith and do not doubt, you, plural, will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you, plural, say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you, plural, ask in prayer, you, plural, will receive if you, plural, have faith. This type of praying this exhibiting of mountain-moving faith is ultimately accomplished, my friends, as a community of believers or as a local church. Jesus, my friends, is not encouraging Lone Ranger prayer warriors. He is encouraging the church to pray together with mountain-moving faith. He's not saying keep going off on your own and that's where you do your praying. He's saying when you come together and you pray, mountains move. Or as the disciples gathered in the book of Acts up in a room and they prayed together and the place was shaken and they were filled with God's spirit and enabled to go and boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. They weren't isolated. They were together. Oh, in the days of COVID-19 where it has made so many separate from the church and question the validity and the importance of the actual church, the actual body, the actual gathering, membering actually with the local church, they question it. But I say firmly in this day, it is imperative that God's people not only gather together as a local church, but that they pray together to reach local places all around us. This message of mountain-moving faith, it is even for us today. We must not doubt what we as Riverside can accomplish together in God's strength for God's name. Do you see the vision that I see? Do you see the vision that our elders see? You only see, perhaps, empty places. But do you see the vision of not just having people transfer from other churches? That's not what we're looking for. Do you see the vision of actually those who walk up and down the street, actually those who live in a godless existence right across the road, do you see them actually coming to know Jesus Christ? God is strong. His people, when they pray, are strong in God. And we must not doubt the amazing things that we can indeed accomplish when we gather together in prayer. My friends, we can. We can grow in holiness 
in spite of our temptations. We can be a healthy church in spite of all of our past sins. We can be a robust gospel presence in Newport Ritchie. We can partner with other churches to take the gospel to the nations. We can be the people that God has called us to be, and we can do the task that God has called us to do. We can move mountains because Jesus is with us. He's given us access. And when we take that access in prayer without doubting, God moves mountains through us. We must not neglect the pivotal place of prayer and God's mountain-moving plan. I don't want to overstate it. I don't want to be redundant, but let the simple thing that we're doing each weekday of having a reminder on our phone that 10.02 a.m. that pops up and says, pray for the harvest at Riverside. Let not that simple thing be the only thing, but let it be a start. Let it be a catalyst where God's people, either at the same time all together during the week or as we gather together, let that be a catalyst to arm us with the mindset that we will pray. Now, there's a danger in what I'm about to say to make it seem like I'm kind of hitting you with a hammer. And I'm not trying to do that because I don't want to guilt people into prayer. But I'm going to say this. If you really believe that God moves mountains when his people gather for prayer, if you believe that with me, then when we get together in a couple of weeks, the 24th, 8.45 a.m. in the fellowship hall, will it be all of us who gather? Will we have our membership of Riverside come together and plead with God as a unified body, asking for him to mobilize us to reach people with the gospel? Can we do that as a church? All of those plurals, can we employ them as we go to God in prayer? Oh, Jesus has provided us with two crucial lessons here. Lesson one, fig trees should bear figs. Are you barren, my friend? Are you without fruit, even though you have claimed to be a Christian for years? Then repent of your sin. Turn to the only Savior who can save you and see him transform you into a life that bears pleasant fruit for the Savior's enjoyment? Or are you a Christian, but one who has let rottenness remain on your limbs? One who has neglected the duty of cutting off certain areas of sin in your life? My friends, repent of this, earnestly confessing this sin to God and humbly asking the help of others in your Riverside family that you might cut out that rottenness with the strength of God through the strength of God's people collectively. Lesson two, faith should move mountains. My friends, do you doubt? Do you doubt God's ability to transform your heart into one like God's son? Do you doubt his ability to over years, over decades, make you into something different? It is a fallacy to say that people don't change. It's true that unredeemed people don't change. They remain sinners. But redeemed people change. They transform. They become like Jesus in ever-increasing amounts until they behold the face of God. Because as the people of Jesus behold the face of Jesus, they become like the person of Jesus. Do you doubt God's ability to transform your heart and your life into one that looks like his son? 
don't doubt. And do you doubt God's ability to transform our congregation or any individual person in our congregation or any person in our community even? Do you doubt God's ability to transform them with the gospel? Oh, my friends, don't doubt. Do not doubt, but let us pray in faith. Let us together wait upon God in prayer, expecting him to work with might in our midst as we move mountains. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for Jesus, your Son, our Savior, and for what this tells us about him and for what he tells us about faith and about fruit. I pray, Lord, that anyone in this room who doesn't know Christ would today know Christ by turning from their sin and embracing him in faith the one who shed his blood for their sins, who can make them right with God. I pray also that your people would be fruitful, that we would seek to kill sin, and that, Lord, we would seek to proclaim the Son. Help us do this, I pray, in Jesus' name.